The first scripture reading this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. This is the word of God for the people of God. Believe it or not, there was a time in my life when I was younger, mostly when I was a teenager in high school, when I didn't really have it together. I had a tendency to leave my school books at home or to lose papers in my backpack, which absolutely drove my mother up the wall. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. It wasn't that I wasn't doing my homework, I just couldn't find it when it was time to turn it in. I wasn't just messy back then, I was radically and inventively unorganized. So I'd come home penitent, promising that I'd put things where they belonged and that I'd start using my binder and my folders correctly, that I'd make sure to turn all of the missing papers in the next day regardless of whether I found them or had to redo them. And my mom would reply with the same simple answer. It was something that my sister often heard too, and it always made us cringe and we always knew it was coming. We hated to hear it because it was true even though we didn't want it to be and it seemingly applied to every situation. Whenever we would make a mistake repeatedly and promise to do better, we'd hear those dreaded words. Well, actions speak louder than words. 
We hated it. We hated that no matter how much we tried to talk our ways out of things, no matter how thorough our promises for the future, that simple phrase was an effective response. But you know what? Now, even now, long after I've finished high school, I remember the point that that statement made. There are a lot of these kinds of statements that float around. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, or a watched pot never boils. These are simple, short, and catchy, which makes them perfect tools to teach children and maybe some adults some important lessons about life. At the end of the day, parenting is, after all, largely about giving children opportunities, and then as with these little proverbs, making sure that you teach them how to make the best use of those opportunities so that they can have a good and meaningful life. I was blessed to have parents who were always teaching and guiding me, often by simply doing things with me, but also by sharing the lessons that they had learned throughout their lives. This morning, our two scriptures come from two very different types of teaching. First, in Proverbs, we have Solomon, the king, as a father sharing general broad wisdom with his son. Second, in Titus, we have Paul advising a young pastor in Crete on how to best guide the people of his church against divisions and false teachings. Now, these are very different contexts separated by a long stretch of time and geography, but they both contain the idea that by living a faithful life and following some basic practices, we can live well. The part of Paul's letter that we read this morning can be summarized simply as do righteous things, be renewed by Christ so that you don't do unrighteous things, and be wise enough to tell the difference between important and unimportant conflicts. He gives us a list of virtues and sins as he was so often apt to do. But with Paul, we always know that it's not meant to be comprehensive. So how can we know what is good and bad from day to day when so few things are explicitly stated in these lists? Well, the biblical answer, the thing that we saw in Proverbs, is that we learn to differentiate between righteousness and unrighteousness by pursuing wisdom. Because that's how you learn to understand what is right and just and fair. Every good path, as it says. Scripture is clear. Wisdom comes from God and God alone. The entire book of Proverbs is uh, devoted to showing how living with trust and fear of God, which is about recognizing Him as powerful as opposed to threatening, enables us to gain understanding. If we heed the suggestion of Solomon, the author of Proverbs, then we will pursue wisdom as enthusiastically as we would gold or silver or any kind of treasure. And the obvious place to start is with the places in the Bible where God gives us specific commandments. In the Old Testament, the Lord gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments as their guiding law and then goes on to give them more than 600 other Mosaic laws about all sorts of things. Just read Exodus or Deuteronomy if you want to know more. The people of Israel were called to significant lengths to differentiate themselves from their pagan neighbors. 
And then in the New Testament, Jesus gives commandments to his disciples, to people he meets on the streets, to people who come to him seeking healing. There are a lot of moments in the Old and the New Testament where God engages with the people, helping them to navigate their relationships with the world and those around them. Now, I'm not saying that we're obligated to uphold all of the Jewish laws. Paul writes extensively. He writes whole letters about why that's not the case. Not all of the commandments in the Bible were meant for us, after all, but it's only by reading closely that we can understand which ones are and that we can understand those commandments themselves. And even the ones that don't apply to us, like kosher eating, can still teach us something about God. He wanted his people to be distinct, united in their beliefs and their practices, and willing to pursue purity for the sake of holiness and closeness to him. In those commandments, we see people who understood the fear of the Lord and found the knowledge of God. But beyond just reading about how other people followed God's commandments, though, we grow in understanding and faith when we devote ourselves to understanding God's will. In the same way that a child learns effectively through activities and by doing things with their parents, we too can learn more about following God's will by maintaining spiritual disciplines. Now, when I've talked to people about this before, I've heard the statement, I just don't get much out of it, used fairly often. I don't get much out of journaling or meditating or walking through nature. All of these things are things that some people consider to be spiritual practices, and they certainly can serve that purpose if they're approached in a way that seeks closeness with God. But when I talk about spiritual disciplines, those aren't really the ones that I mean. What I mean are things like prayer and Bible study and fasting, like taking communion and participating in corporate worship together. And these are not things that we can be content to not get much out of. These are things that are instituted by Scripture and have long been central to the Christian experience. These disciplines were ones that Jesus both did and instructed his followers to do. And because of that, we can know that they're uniquely able to draw us further into a fruitful relationship with the Lord. By accompanying our study of Scripture with these disciplines, which help us to experience God's love, we provide context to what we read and prepare ourselves to be changed by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is full of powerful stories of changed lives and people touched by God. How much more so than when you live a life that allows you to experience the same closeness with God that was written about so long ago? Wisdom comes from experience, and the way that you experience God is through trust and faithful devotion. Experiencing and knowing God, then, is the way that we grow to better understand what is good. It's how we build our moral framework on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the bedrock of faith in God. And as that framework becomes better established, as we flesh it out more and more, we become more able to do the work of discernment that Paul is talking about in his letter. Remember the summary from earlier? Do righteous things. 
be renewed by Christ so that you don't do unrighteous things and be wise enough to differentiate between important and unimportant conflicts. Wisdom is how we make the distinction between righteous and unrighteous things, between worthwhile and pointless conflicts. This is one of those places where everything seems eminently relevant to us today. But that last point is the one that probably hits the hardest in the modern day, at least I think so. As part of his discussion of what the church ought to look like, he specifically tells us not to get into little fights about pointless things. We live in an especially polarized and charged time where it's easy to take sides and divide ourselves over virtually any issue. You see this in abundance if you get on social media or if you watch the national news, and it bleeds into our everyday reality and infects our relationships that we have with other people. But it isn't just secular matters that we're divided over. Within the church, people have opinions about music style, about sermon length and dress code. We criticize based on whether people meet in a sanctuary, an auditorium, or an elementary school cafeteria. The church has had ongoing, seemingly endless debates about things like free will versus predestination, high church versus low church style, and all sorts of other things. And there's a place for those kinds of discussions, to be sure, but they'll completely consume us if we allow them to dominate our lives. And a life devoted to division is not a life that's well-lived. It keeps us from happiness. It undermines the gospel message. It prevents us from doing good work. And frankly, it's disobedient to the Lord who called us to live as one single unified body. Living well involves living for the gospel, proclaiming the good news of new life of Jesus Christ to all people. The message we have is that the work done by Christ is available to all and that all need it. And that when we come together in his church, we're rallying around the only thing that truly matters. We leave behind all of our old identities and take up the cross instead. And it's under that cross that we become citizens of one kingdom, the kingdom of God. So what sort of message does it send to the world around us if we spend our time within that kingdom divided over pointless things, over semantics, or over piety that's based in legalism rather than renewal? When we choose division and infighting over the grace and love of Jesus Christ, We undermine the gospel by showing that our priorities are conformity rather than new life. We don't care if you're holy so long as you agree with us. Now, it's important to note here that Paul is warning against fruitless arguments, not against all arguments. There have always been movements within the church that stand against the truth of Christ even questioning core doctrines like the Trinity or the bodily resurrection of Jesus. At the same time that there were people who argued that we didn't need rebirth because we could just stop sinning by force of will, people called the Pelagians, there were also people who were arguing that there was no more sin, nothing was sin anymore, and that all actions are acceptable, people called antinomians. There are always arguments drawing us to both sides 
away from the central message of Christ. Avoiding fruitless arguments doesn't mean that we can't stand for anything. In fact, standing against pointless divisions is standing for the fact that we're called to hold a certain respect for one another and a generosity in our discussions. How do we determine which arguments are worth having? In our pursuit of wisdom, we become better able to determine what's worthwhile and what's necessary. Additionally, time spent arguing over little things is time not spent doing the good works that we've been called to. The commandments of Jesus Christ to love God and our neighbors are the necessary fruits of faith. We're called to follow Christ, to visit the sick and feed the hungry and clothe the naked. All of those things are so much more important to the Christian faith than the stereotypical carpet color argument that's the subject of so many church jokes. Paul is harsh when talking about divisions, but there's a good reason for that. Arguments, rumors, gossip, and meanness, all of these things can poison a church, breeding spite and resentment and distrust where we should know only grace and love. These sorts of arguments are rooted in disobedience to God, as Paul says, because they're self-condemning. As people get caught up in these controversies, They become distracted from the things that are important to maintaining our relationships with God, and they naturally, as a result, become more distant from the church that God has established to be a refuge for them. So dangerous are these issues, in fact, that Paul tells Titus just to send people out of the church if they can't get along because they don't want the rest of the people to get caught up in it and pulled away from God. But believe it or not, this isn't actually a critical letter, or at least it isn't mostly critical. In this passage, Paul's main goal is to remind Titus that our life in Jesus Christ is a good one, and that we're free to enjoy his mercy and generosity with our whole lives. That's the only way, he says, to have a good life. We can rejoice in everything that he's given us by devoting ourselves to doing good works, And in doing so, in doing good works, we experience Christ more fully. In particular, Paul speaks to maintaining the integrity of the church as critical to truly living well. First, Paul says that the church cannot become overwhelmed by slander. We have to treat one another with a basic level of love and respect, even when we disagree with one another, because we're called to love as Christ loved. That doesn't mean that we have to endorse everybody's ideas or their decisions. Jesus himself often told people to change their ways, to go and sin no more. And he even cast people out of the temple when they turned it into a marketplace. But it does mean that we have to engage with one another honestly, with our goal being that both people both us and them, should end up closer to Christ rather than going in with the goal of winning the argument as though that's possible. And avoiding slander means respecting one another enough to go directly to someone if we have an issue. Can you imagine a community where we only talked to one another rather than about one another? And second, Paul says that Christians should be peaceable and considerate in their discussions. 
When I talk about Scripture, you've probably noticed that I always talk about what the initial readers would have been experiencing before we dive into the text. Because so much of the Bible was written to specific people about specific things, we can't fully understand it without first understanding why it was written. Well, the same thing is true in arguments. To be considerate is to realize that every perspective, idea, and position comes from a person's background. Now again, that doesn't mean that, they can, that they're right just because of their experience. A person can have experienced terrible things and still be profoundly wrong. But it does mean that we have to understand where someone is coming from before we can lovingly engage with their thoughts. And as far as being peaceable goes, I think this is just Paul again cautioning against frivolous arguments. Don't fight unless there's good reason. And make sure that you've pursued wisdom so that you can actually recognize whether a reason is good and whether an argument is fruitful. And finally, Paul calls for us to be gentle. Now this one's a little bit more complex because it's rooted in philosophy. And because of that, I could go on and on about it, but I won't. But the general idea is that a gentle or meek person is one who can argue their case without losing their temper. A gentle correction is one that's done for the good of the other rather than to punish. And a gentle person is not excessive in such things. So what does Paul have to say about living well? He says that it can only truly be done within the church, within the kingdom of God. And it can only be done when we seek to emulate Christ and work as one body. And most importantly, it can only be done when we're open to the work of the Holy Spirit, which renews us into a people who can live and can move together in peace, placing the love of God and love of one another above all else. So thanks be to God who gives us the gift that makes such a thing possible in a community in which we can know a good life. Amen.